0: Let's get in the Word. We're in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. As you turn to Mark chapter 10, would you stand with me and let's pray together and ask God to meet us in the Word this morning. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time of year. I pray that you would just bless everybody from RMC as they celebrate you this week and May you use us in our community, with our families and friends. We thank you for this coffee bar. We pray that you would use it for your glory, that lives would be touched, relationships would be built, conversations of you would take place. As we study your word this morning, we invite you here, Holy Spirit. Would you speak to us? We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. In our text this morning, Jesus foretells his ransom of him paying the price for our sin. It's the third time in the Gospel of Mark that he predicts his death and resurrection. If you look at your Bible, there's three main sections. There's three main paragraphs. The first is the foretelling of his crucifixion. And then we find the greatness of serving, the importance of serving. And then it ends with the desperation and determination of blind Bartimaeus. And there's much for us to glean in these three paragraphs. So would you join me in verse 32? Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. At first reading, that may not seem to be hugely significant. But as we look at the timing in the Gospels, we know that Christ is heading towards his crucifixion. When he gets to Jerusalem, the triumphal entry is going to take place, and he is intent on his death. He has the vision of Calvary in front of him, and he's walking on this road up to Jerusalem. We know from earlier on in the chapter, they're in the Jordan Valley. They're east of the Jordan River, in the Jericho region, not in the Galilee region. And Christ is knowing that he's going to be crucified, knowing that he is going to shed his blood for the sins of the world. This moment is the defining moment in all of scripture, Christ's crucifixion. All time past is leading up to his death. All time after his resurrection is impacted by his sacrifice. When God created the world, he told us that Christ was slain from the foundations of the world. So before God even created the world, he knew that it would mean the death of his son. That's what they chose. All of the Old Testament, the message of the Old Testament is showing us our need for Jesus Christ, predicting his coming. This is a colossal moment. It's an indescribable moment as now Christ is headed to Jerusalem to surrender his life. Goes on in verse 32, and Jesus was going before them and they were amazed. The verb there is very clear, that Christ is going before them. So if you picture the 13 walking together, Christ is out front. Christ is leading the way in the charge into Jerusalem. It caused the disciples to be amazed, to be astonished. Why would they be amazed? Because they knew Jerusalem was a very dangerous place for Christ. I don't think that they grasped the crucifixion. They didn't understand that the crucifixion was in front of Christ. But they did understand the impending danger that was upon Christ. And they were amazed that Jesus would go to Jerusalem with such determination. John's account, we have Thomas, doubting Thomas. And he turns to Jesus and he says, let's go to Jerusalem and die with you there. He, he got the danger that lied in Jerusalem. He's saying, if we go to Jerusalem, we're going to die. You're going to die all of us are going to die. So they're headed to Jerusalem. Christ leads us in triumph, but he also leads us into suffering. He'll be out in front of us, and there'll be times where he's leading us into suffering. He's, he's leading us into to triumph. This phrase really stood out to me this week. And as they followed, they were afraid. They followed Christ, but they were also afraid. They didn't allow their fear to keep them from following the Lord. And this will be the case sometimes, maybe many times in our lives, that we're afraid while we're following Christ. And it would be great if we weren't afraid, but the reality is that we are. And for fear to paralyze us, to keep us from following the Lord, that would be a defeat. But a victory would be able to say, I am afraid. I'm afraid of where Christ is leading me. I'm afraid of what he's asking me, me to do, but I trust him enough to be able to follow him in my fear. To not allow my fear to have the victory in in my life. Then he took the twelve aside and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. The third time that he predicts his death. He brings these guys aside. They stop their journey. And he begins to share this with them. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. I think that Jesus probably said this with a little bit of emphasis because... Of how the disciples were doubting. How they were in this place of fear. Maybe they were hoping Christ would change his mind. And he looks at him. and he says, Guys, we are going to Jerusalem. I am set upon going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. The Son of Man emphasizing the humanity of Christ. When we read Son of God, it emphasizes his deity. But here it's Son of Man. It's the Son of Man who is... Betrayed. As we celebrate the Nativity, we celebrate Christ being born in Bethlehem this week. From the manger, we have a view of the cross. It was leading to this point where Christ would be betrayed, where he would be killed. Notice who betrays him it's the chief priests and the scribes. The place where you would hope that God's Son would have reception inside of the temple is the place that he received rejection. And maybe in your life where you should have received a warm welcome, you've actually experienced your greatest betrayal. Maybe inside of your family. Maybe inside of your marriage. Maybe inside of the family of God. Maybe inside of relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. The Son of Man understands betrayal. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with our grief. As you go through betrayal in life, we really have two choices, don't we? One is to get bitter or the other is to fellowship with Christ in his suffering. go, so Jesus, you understand this. You can heal my heart. He has the betrayal of the chief priests and the scribes, but also of Judas, his follower, who had been with him for, for three years. We go on, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. Think about that for a moment to be condemned. There's only one person in all of human history who lived absolutely perfect, and it was Jesus. And he's condemned to death. Faces capital punishment. Gets that label placed upon him that he deserves to die through execution of crucifixion. How do you like, how do I like it, when we get labeled for something we didn't do? When we get condemned for something that we didn't do? When we think about the atmosphere around the temple and the chief priests and the the scribes, where there may be some of those that were there at the temple when Jesus was 12 and he was blowing their mind. This isn't the first time that they experienced Christ. Christ had come into the temple and turned the tables twice. And now they're the ones that are leading the charge for him to be condemned, then turning him over to the Gentiles, turning him over to the Romans. Describing his suffering, of all of the predictions of his death, foretelling his ransom, this is where we find the most detail in the Gospel of Mark. And they will mock him. Christ was mocked brutally in his trial and his crucifixion. If you're God, save yourself. You've saved others, why don't you save yourself? All of the insults that were being hurled at Christ... Christ continues to be mocked, doesn't he? It's not that Christ stopped being mocked at his crucifixion and his resurrection. People continue to mock Christ to to this day. And they will scourge him. This speaks of his whipping. The Romans had a cat of nine tails was the whip that they would use. Nine strips of leather. And they would connect to those strips pieces of metal and glass and bone. Roman soldiers were masters at torture, whipping Christ's back to the point where he would be tore down to the very bone, exposed down to the, the very bone, reaching across to his chest and ripping out flesh from, from his ribs. History tells us many would be killed from this type of beating, this type of, of scourging. Why was Christ whipped? Why Why? Was it not enough for him to be crucified? Why did the Father allow him to be scourged in this way? Isaiah 53 tells us that by his stripes we're healed. There's there's a healing that comes from what Christ has done for us. A lot of us really struggle with, does God really love me? You know, we hear it, we say it, but yet we struggle, we sin, we know ourselves. We go, "Could could he really love me? And in the back of our minds, we might go, Someday God's going to turn his back on me. He's just going to give up on me. He's going to say, that's enough. I'm going to walk away from you. And see, Jesus turned his back for you so that you know he'll never turn his back on you. I mean, really look at what he's done. We know that in heaven he bears the scars of the wounds from from the crucifixion. We're going to behold these wounds. Doubting Thomas that we were speaking of was doubting the resurrection. And Jesus said, you know, take your hand and put it into to my wounds. Behold the lamb that was slain for, for our sins. He did that because he loves you. He, he did that because he loves me. And spit on him. This is the universal sign for shame throughout all of history. One of the most disgraceful, disgusting things that you can do to somebody is to spit in their face, Right? And here they're just spitting on Christ multiple times and mocking him and showing their disdain for Christ. And then kill him. They killed him. He was crucified, nailed to the cross. Yes, Christ had a literal body, a human flesh that was killed upon the cross. Unless the rapture happens that we're all hoping for, we're going to face death. Every one of us. You know, 10 out of 10 people that eat carrots die. It's amazing. Right? We will face death. and What an encouragement to know. Christ knows exactly what it feels like. He faced death. As he hung upon the cross. What were his last words? It is finished. He cried out in victory. The price has been paid. The ransom has been fulfilled. I have fulfilled the sacrifice for sin. He was killed. And the third day he will rise again the third day he will rise again the suffering of christ is not the last word it's the resurrection of christ he rose from the dead defeating sin defeating death scripture tells us that he's abolished death death where is your your sting i believe also this is a picture this is a pattern of all suffering in our lives the suffering is leading to glory. The suffering is leading to the resurrection. The suffering doesn't have the last word. Because Christ is risen, we too will rise. Christ's body is called the first fruits of the resurrection. We're going to have a glorified body that's just like his glorified body. All of the suffering of this life is leading to the resurrection. And it's coming soon. Eternity lasts forever and our lives here on earth are just a moment. We know from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, listen to this verse, the attitude that Jesus had as he faced this suffering. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're encouraged to look to Jesus, to look to his suffering, and to see that he had his mindset On the joy that was set before him. What was the joy set before him? Being restored in fellowship with the Father. Inheriting his bride. Believers. The body of Christ. And that's where his focus was. The joy that was set before him. Despising the shame. He hated the shame. Don't think it wasn't difficult. We have the physical suffering. We have the spiritual suffering. He never knew sin. But yet he became sin and was punished for our sin. He cried out to the father and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He hated the shame. It hurt beyond words they could describe, but his heart and mind and focus was on the joy that was set before him. And we get to do the same thing. We can go through this life with an eternal perspective. Amen. It's not about this life. It hurts. It's difficult. Doesn't make the pain go away. But I know I'm a temporary resident. I'm looking for that joy that's set before me, just as Christ did as well. Verse 35 Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It's crazy, it's mind blowing. Jesus gets done pouring out his heart pretty clearly. I'm going to be killed. They know Jerusalem is very dangerous, but James and John just can't stop thinking about themselves. They've got their own agenda, they've got their own wants and their own desires in the midst of this intense moment. Their request is brutally honest, isn't it? Hey Jesus, um, we just want you to do whatever we ask. It's the exact opposite of the way prayer should work. Jesus taught us to pray, not my will, but your will be done. But how many times are we exactly like James and John, the sons of Zebedee? We may not put it in such blunt words, but we come to God and we say, Lord, I love you. Thank you for who you are. May your will be done. Now do what I want. (laughs) This is how I want this situation to go. Usually it's driven by our own desires, our own plans, Verse 36, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? What a gracious response. He said, guys, you guys are knuckleheads. You're thick-headed. Didn't you hear what I just said to you? He says, okay, let's entertain this conversation. What do you want me to do for you? Then they said to him, grant us that we may sit on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. What are some of the other things that James and John had brought to Jesus? Remember we read that these two brothers came and said, we we heard these guys were casting out demons in your name and they're not part of us. So we forbade them. We told them to be quiet. Jesus said, no, that's not it, guys. We're all on the same team. And now they're coming and they're requesting and they're saying, we want to have the positions of, of power. Another time, these two brothers came to Jesus because there was a Samaritan village that didn't want Christ there. Remember their request? So we remember Elijah calling down fire from heaven. Would you like us to do that? Let's just barbecue this whole community right now, you know? It's amazing how far the disciples came in their journey with Jesus. It brings us great encouragement, doesn't it? We know as Christ died and he rose again and was baptized with the Holy Spirit, God really did a changing work in these two brothers. John becomes the disciple of love. But at this moment, they're concerned with, okay, Jesus, you're going to come in your glory. They get that he's the Messiah, that he's going to rule and reign, and they're saying, when you do, we want to have the chief seats. We want to be on your right hand, and we want to be on your left. What is it inside of these two men and inside of us where we want position, we want recognition, we want power? Maybe, in your job, and you just feel like i 've got to move up i 've got to have more responsibility, I need promotion, I need recognition, maybe it 's not about the money, but you want your work to be recognized maybe it 's in your family, and you say i 've never really been respected amongst my siblings or i 've never really been feel like i 've been respected by my spouse or or my parents, and, and I need that recognition, maybe sometimes it 's even in the Church of God, the family of God we 're following christ and we 're serving, but yet there 's something inside of us that says. I want to be recognized. I want the position of power. I, I want the, the chief seat. And I think we all wrestle with this and may request this just like James and John did. In verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Isn't that so true? So many times as we talk with the Lord, we're not even aware of what we're asking for. It may seem so good to us. So thankful in my life that God says no to some of my prayers. And here Jesus is saying no to these guys. He's saying, you're not even aware of, of what you're asking for. You're asking amiss. He asks them a question Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? The cup and the baptism both speak of his suffering. Baptism means to be immersed. He's saying, Are you willing to be immersed? in the suffering that I am going to encounter? When Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying, he described the cross as a cup. He said, take this cup from me, speaking of the suffering that he would drink, the suffering that he would go through. Guys, you want the power. You want the glory. You want the recognition. But are you willing to go through the suffering? And I think a lot of times, spiritually, we don't realize that the two go hand in hand. You say, God, I want you to use my life. Many times that comes with suffering. Many times it comes through a baptism of fire. It seems like I've observed people's lives that have been used by God and have these kind of positions that James and John are describing. It has come with a tremendous amount of suffering, a tremendous amount of difficulty. And he challenges these two men and he says, are you really ready to suffer in this way? Notice their answer in verse 39. And they said to him, we're able. Put me in, coach. I'm ready for, for the suffering. I'm ready for the baptism. I'm ready for this cup that, that you describe. How many times do we overestimate our own strength, don't we? We go, yeah, I, I can do this. Yeah, I, I got this. And Christ then speaks and says to them, you indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I'm baptized with, you will be baptized. The life of James and John was one of great suffering. James was killed for his faith. He was martyred. John was boiled in hot oil and exiled to the island of Patmos where he received the revelation of Jesus Christ, the book of of Revelation. They indeed would go through the same baptism as Christ, the same suffering, the, the same difficulty. Yes, Christ's far greater. But they would walk in similar footsteps as Christ. Verse 40, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is my, mine to give. But it is for those whom it is prepared. And that's the father's job. The father's going to determine who's going to be on my right hand and who's going to be on my left. Now focus me on you know, verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. I think it's humorous how polite the Bible is. You know? The Bible just puts it in such polite terms. The other ten heard about it and they were greatly displeased. Eric paraphrased, the other ten were extremely ticked off. Some translations put it that they were indignant. They were mad beyond words. What are you guys doing? Why, Why are you going and trying to get these positions of power? This shows us that deep down, they wanted those positions as well. All 12 of them were hungry for power and hungry for position. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, I want you to really think of the, the graciousness and the kindness of Jesus and the way he shows it to the disciples and the way he shows it to us. He says, all right, guys, let's talk about this some more. I want to call you to myself. And he begins to instruct them and teach them. And this is such an important lesson for us this morning, the importance of serving. You know those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. This is worldly leadership. That's what Jesus is speaking of. saying, this is the way that it's done by people who don't know me, who don't have a relationship with me. They lord it over. I'm the boss, so you're going to do what I say. Very authoritative leadership. I've been here long enough, so I don't have to do that. That's not my job anymore. This is while you're here, so you're going to, to have to do it. With a great emphasis of wanting to climb the ladder. To be the one who's in charge. So that you can exercise authority over others. This is at the heart of what the disciples are struggling with. This is the position that they want. And this is what they're hungry for. And Jesus wants to change their perspective. He says, yeah, it shall not be so among you. We need to hear that. God does not want us leading like the world, leading like unbelievers. He doesn't want the disciples who would be the future leaders of the church having this authoritative type of, of mindset. Don't let it be so among you. And then Christ instructs us how he does want us to live, but who des- whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. True greatness, what we should be aspiring to is not these positions of power or envy or jealousy, But a heart of service, a heart that says, I want to serve others. So God's given you authority. He's given you position. We think of it oftentimes like a pyramid. And whoever's at the the top of the organization, they're up here on the pyramid. They get to call the shots. Jesus would flip that pyramid, place himself on the bottom and consider everybody else's needs greater than his own. That's how God describes it. So mom and dad, we've been given authority inside of our family with our kids. Well, what does that really mean? That means that we're called by God to serve them. You've got a few people under you in the workplace, and you're their boss, you're their overseer. They're not there to serve you, you're there to serve them. That's how God sees it, and he he flips it On its head and says, This is true greatness. This is what you desire. And Christ led the way in this, didn't he? And he'll express that for us. Verse 44, he says, And whoever of you desires to be first shall be the slave of all. Jesus first described servant, and now he describes slave. Slavery, unfortunately, was alive and well during the Roman Empire. So many slaves. No choice but to do the jobs that nobody else wants to do. They didn't have the opportunity to go to their master and say, hey, I don't want to do this today. I'm opting out of this. Jesus intentionally uses this word. and He says, guys, I want you to take the position of slave. I want you to take the position of being a slave unto Jesus and a slave unto other people's needs. How do we know if we have this heart of a servant and the heart of a slave unto the Lord? Is when people treat us like a servant. That's the real test. When you get treated with disrespect in your family, then we know if we're a heart of a servant or if we well up and puff up and say, hey, don't talk to me like that. Don't disrespect me like that. You know, at the workplace, someone crosses us and steps on our toes, and what do we do? We say, hey, I've been here for so long, you don't get to talk to me like that, right? And we go, oh, wait a second. I'm not being a servant here. I've allowed myself to, to go to a place of having Gentile type of leadership. It's a, it's a real, real challenge. If someone cuts you off on the road, drives crazy in the snow, and what do we say? Stinking Californians, you don't know how to drive, right? I've been here for 20 years, and you've been here for five months. It's come on, right? Take that position of a servant. Take that position of, of a slave verse 45, for even the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If there was ever someone who could have demanded to be served, it would have been Jesus. God in human flesh. I am the son of God. You will serve me. Had the power to require that. The power to demand it. He gives us his mission statement. He gives us his life value in saying, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve. Were James and John in this mindset? Were they in this place of where they're coming to serve? Or really in their hearts, in their agenda, was there this desire to be served? Yeah, they wanted to to be served. And how about for us? Is this our mission in life? To serve others or to desire to be served. When you wake up in the morning, let's be honest, deep down, are we hoping that our family's going to serve us? And do we get kind of irritated when we have to serve them? Don't you get it? You're, you're supposed to serve me, you know. Do we come to church with an attitude of, of, serve me? I expect to be served. I expect to be blessed. This is how I expect to be treated by brothers and sisters in Christ. Or do we come together with gatherings like this, or getting together with believers in a home, and we come going, God, I want to serve them. I want to be a blessing to them. Would you show me somebody that needs prayer, that needs a conversation? Is there a need that's not being met? That's a different mindset, isn't it? In our workplace, do we wake up on Monday morning with an expectation to serve, or with an expectation to be served? As we go into 2017, there was a day this week that I thought we were going into 2018. Then I had a conversation with Robert, and he, you know, it's like, no, we're going into 2017. I just skipped a whole year in my mind. I, I, I don't know why, but are we going into 2017 with a goal that says, I, I want to serve? Let's be honest a lot of our New Year's resolutions are self focused. How do I make myself better? How do I enjoy life more? How do I get a little bit more vacation? Those type types of things. And they say, no, I want my goal to be to know Christ and to serve. I want to serve better. I want to serve better in my family, in my church, in my workplace. I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve. And then Jesus ends this verse and he says, and to give his life a ransom for many. Ransom is to pay the price. Literally, as a slave was being purchased, the ransom was the price that was paid, and we're enslaved to sin. What's the price for us to be freed? Is Jesus paid it all. He served to the point of giving his life. That's how far servanthood took him. Now, this is not a new teaching for us in Mark. If you would, Jesus is driving it home to the disciples. He's driving it home to us. But even though we hear it so many times, why is it that it falls on deaf ears and a hard heart? How is it that we don't move forward in this service? And as I was examining that question in my my heart and my life, I think this is why. Because service attacks selfishness. And a selfishness is alive and well every single day, isn't it? And so in order for... Me to get past my selfishness, it involves the cross. I have to be willing to pay the price in order to enter into serving others. Jesus paid the price for other people's sins, for other people's wrongs. And many times, this is where our servanthood stops. Say, I'm not going to pay the price for my spouse's sin. I'm not going to pay the price for my kids' sin. I'm not going to pay the price for an unbeliever's sin at the workplace. They can get what's coming to them. And Jesus is saying, come and die. He's saying to the disciples, come and die. Die to yourself. Die to your selfishness. But on the other side of this, isn't the life of service so beautiful? Isn't loving Christ and caring for other people's needs and seeing beyond our own agendas, saying, I don't care about being in the right hand and the left hand. I'm willing to be a servant. I'm willing to be a doorkeeper. I'm willing to meet needs and love people. Then then true joy comes in to our hearts and lives. Jesus left a gift to the disciples as we think of gifts this Christmas week. And you know what his gift was? It was his joy. He says, this is my joy, guys. Be a foot washer. He came into a room of guys with dirty, stinky feet as they were walking on dirty, sewage-filled roads. He got a towel and he started washing those guys' feet. And he says, You know what, guys? You want to really have joy? Do what I've done. I've done this as an example to you. The last scene is blind Bartimaeus in verse 46. Now, when they came to Jericho, as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. Jericho sits at a lower elevation. There's a lot of agriculture, palm trees, date trees, and you climb in elevation as you go up to Jerusalem. As they're coming out of Jericho, here's a blind man. Many of the people Jesus healed in the Gospels, we don't have their name recorded. But we have Bartimaeus. I believe because he's a fixture on the road going out of Jericho. Everybody knows that this is where blind Bart hangs out and he begs. didn't have any other choice, many, any other options, no government resources in order to care for his needs. He begged to be able to have his subsistence for daily, daily living. He realizes today's different in verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Notice he's not bashful, he's not timid, he's not quiet. He cries out, he cries out, and he says, Jesus, son of David, would you, would you have mercy on me? And many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Don't let someone silence your voice, to cry out for the mercy of Christ. Amen? There'll be many people that will try to silence you crying out for the mercy of Christ. You're not going to find too many voices in Colorado Springs that are going to try to silence your voice for marijuana. Marijuana, have mercy on me. There's things that don't work in my life. I'm broken. Marijuana, have mercy upon me. There will be many that will show you an avenue where you can get that fix. You're not going to find too many voices that are going to speak into your life and try to silence you as you cry out to sexual sin to fix your problems. No, they're going to say, go for it. But as soon as you cry out to Jesus, you're going to find some people that want to silence you. You're going to find people at your work that are going to say, what? You're crying out to Jesus? Really? You believe in him? You're going to find people in your family. You're going to find people inside of the church of God that are going to say, don't get that fanatical about Jesus. Yeah, I go to church too, but you're getting kind of crazy. You're crying out for mercy. You need to be silenced. You need to to be quiet. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he is calling to you. The determination of blind Bartimaeus causes Jesus to stand still, headed to Jerusalem, the vision of Calvary, and he hears this cry for mercy. What's beautiful about our Savior, what's beautiful about our God, is he hears the cry for mercy. Scripture tells us in several places, Old Testament and New, that he resists the proud. So someone says, I don't have a need for mercy. I can do it on my own. God actually takes a position where he's resisting us. But he gives grace to the humble. The cry for mercy, the cry for grace is God's sweet spot. How many times has he worked in our lives as we get to the point of blind Bartimaeus and go, I am broken beyond repair. My eyes do not work. I've tried everything possible to fix myself, for others to fix me, but there has been no solution, I am left crying out desperately for the mercy of God. God, would you have mercy upon me? Have you ever gotten to the place in your life where you've stopped pursuing the Lord on a workspace relationship as a believer? Where we stop going to God saying, God, would you bless my life and would you use my life because I've done this. I've read my Bible I've tried to apply these principles to marriage or parenting and gotten to a place of saying, God, I know me. You know me. And would you touch and use my life by your grace and by your mercy? I believe God wants to do a work in your marriage that can only happen by his grace through his mercy. That's a testimony to his glory. Nothing wrong with working hard. Nothing wrong with trying hard. But working and trying cannot even begin to result in the touch of God upon your life. I believe God wants to work in our kids apart from us. Yes, it doesn't release us from our responsibility, but I don't want to go to God and say, God, would you bless my children based on what I've done? I'm really limiting God's blessing in their life. I want to go to them and say, God, I'm a real mess up. I need you to work by your grace. I need you to work by your mercy. I don't think that you're hearing messages like this inside of the body of Christ. You know what you're hearing? Work harder. Take another marriage class. Take another parenting class. Do more devotions. Now, we have a marriage class, and I believe in it, but you know what's going to make that marriage class effective? When you're on your knees before God and you're broken and you're saying, God, be merciful to me. No class can fix my marriage. No class can fix me. Jesus, I need you. I need you. And that's the kind of brokenness that we find in Bartimaeus. And I think that's what God responds to when we cry out in that level of mercy. And notice what the disciples say to him. Be of good cheer. He's calling you. He's inviting us into his mercy. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and he came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? Interesting question. Jesus is enjoying the dialogue, allowing him to bring his need to Jesus. And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. He didn't go his way. He followed Jesus. Jesus compliments his faith. He says, your faith has made you well. How does Bartimaeus show faith? Because he continued to cry out for God's mercy. There's faith in continuing to cry out for God's mercy.